disorders of the eyes fall under nursing care of clients who have neurosensory disorders. The eyes is one of the sense organs on our, on our body, so it falls under the neurosensory disorders. Um, there are so many disorders of the eyes that can be caused by other problems. Some comes natural, others might come in uh, injury, due to injury or trauma. Um, some come with aging. As you age, you're going to have some eye problem. Some come, like I said, with disease processes, and some comes natural. Some come with injury. There's an injury occurring, and then the injury, your, the eyes got injured, and you're going to have this eyes condition. Um, there's a lot of the eyes. Nurses should be aware about these disorders. We're talking about specifically three different disorders here, specifically. Those disorders we'll talk about will be one, macular degeneration. Two, we'll talk about um, glaucoma. And then we'll talk about cataract. Now, when you listen to our fundamental audio, we went in depth with these disorders. In our fundamental audio, we listed all the eyes condition in fundamental. So you can look in fundamental on, on, on our fundamental audios, you'll see all the audios on eye condition. Wherein we talk about the viral eyes test. We'll talk about the viral eyes condition. They are in our audio band. So if you if you need them, you want to go back to them and review them. Now I'm gonna start with macular degeneration. Macular degeneration. Now on a macular degeneration, what is important for us is to know what it is, how it affects the eyes, what are the types. What are the assessment findings about this condition? How can one look at object if you have macular degeneration? It's important also. And then we'll look at the health education about the condition macular degeneration. These are just what we want to understand about this condition. Then we are clear of the anchors about it. Under macular degeneration, it is often called age-related macular degeneration um it is the central loss of vision of the eyes uh, that affects the macula of the eyes so in macular degeneration what is important is it is a central vision loss that means we have different eye conditions if we have a macular eye degeneration this is the eye here uh the pupil of the eye the single point of the eye Will become destroyed that means when you are looking at an object that is ahead of you here this object here because of this portion that is being destroyed the eyes will not visualize the central portion of this object so this portion of the other will become dark the eye will not see this portion but the eye will see other portion around this particular central part of the eyes so in macular degeneration 
the individual who has the condition cannot see the central portion of the eyes, but they can see the peripheral portion of the eyes. That about macular degeneration. Um, this condition has no cure. Uh, it is common cause of vision loss in older adults. So it has no cure. It is common cause of vision, uh, vision loss in adults. It starts very little. It progresses into the worst state, and then the client will lose their eyesight. There are two categories, or there are two types of macular degenerations. Um, we have one we call the dry macular degeneration, and we have the wet macular degeneration. It is so we have the dry one, the dry macular degeneration, and we have the wet macular degeneration. Now, how do we differentiate between the dry and the wet one? In a dry type, it is the most common one, and uh, it is caused by gradual blockade in the retinal capillary arteries. So, it starts with the, with the retina of the eyes. Um, there is a blockade in the capillaries of the arteries, in the retina. Because through those capillaries in the eyes of the or in the retina of the eye, we visualize things. We have the refraction or we have the sensation, the light enters the eye through that particular pathway. So when there's a blockade within there, light cannot be transmitted to, 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 the, to the retina because the capillaries are the pathway in which we use to visualize objects. So for that reason, the individual is going to have eye problem. It will lead to macular degeneration. So, and then now, for the dry one, we said the dry one is the most common one. It also results into the macula becoming ischemic. So when there's a blockade within the capillary of the artery of the, of the eyes, meaning there's a blockade, there, there, there is an obstacle, there's an obstruction, and that obstruction will lead to blood not passing. So blood is deprived from going to the distal end of the eye, and that will cause ischemia, meaning there is no blood in that portion. It will cause ischemia, and then uh, there will be necrosis when there is no blood, because blood is the fluid that the body uses to grow, to live. So when there is no blood going to the other end, because blood transports nutrients and takes away waste products. So if the blood is not going to any portion of the body, that portion will become ischemic, and when there is ischemia, it leads to necrosis. And necrosis means the tissues in there, they are, they are getting mass, they are getting rotten. At the end of the day, they will die and they will become lifeless. They will become lifeless and then the client will ask if the straw for good. That's what happened in the case of macular degeneration, the dry type. So the dry type is a blockade. The blockade leads to ischemia. Ischemia leads to necrosis. And necrosis leads to tissues death, tissues damage for good. It does not have a kill. Then we have the wet one. In the wet macular degeneration, uh, it is less common and uh, is caused by new group of blood vessels that have thin walls that leak blood in blood, blood and fluid. So just imagine the wet one, there is a new blood vessel developing. So in the wet type, we have new blood vessels that have developed 
and those new blood vessels that have developed will lead to increased blood flow and increased fluid flow to the eyes and that will cause leaking of the vessels then blood and fluid will set in the eyes retina it gets more and the individual will lose their eyesight because of the increased blood flow or increased fluid flow to that portion of the eyes that's what happened in the white in the wet macular degeneration in the dry one there is blood flow prevention or blockade of blood flow in the capillaries that leads to ischemia it leads to necrosis and tissues death occur then the client cannot see now there are several risk factors that might give rise to this condition they include smoking um hypertension they include like a like female female are more at risk for this condition than male like sometimes the family history sometimes diet diet lacking carotene and vitamin e when we do not take in carotene carotene and vitamin e diet that when we do not have carotene and vitamin e in our diet it exposes us to having macular degeneration that's why carotene and vitamin e they are good for the eyesight and uh then we have um now for the for the dry one it most often occur in old age for the wet one it occurs at any point in time it could be, you could be a baby you could be an adult you could be a geriatric client you can have the uh the the, the you, you can have the wet one now what is important on here is um when you have this condition you will lose your central vision that's the first thing secondly there will be lack of depth of perception there will be object the object that you're going to see the objects of the site your visual object location there is going to be um object appear distorted the object you're going to be watching in your vision they will appear distorted and you're going to have a uh, blur vision and then subsequently you're going to have complete blindness for this condition the macular the macular degeneration ophthalmo or ophthalmoscopy we do ophthalmoscopy in the ophthalmoscopy we use the ophthalmoscope which is the which is a machine or which or which is the, an equipment that is used um, to examine the back portion of the eyes because the back the retina of the eye is at the back of the head so this particular ophthalmoscope examines the back portion of the eyeball or the fundus so the back portion is called the fundus there the ophthalmoscope only like a monitor or examine because there the retina can be so you have in there it examines the fundus it examines the retina it examines the optic discs it examines the macula and also examines the blood vessel so when you do an ophthalmoscopy these are the portion of the eyes that are being visualized to assess for conditions that might cause illness to the eyes um, then we can also do visual evidence tests. We can also do visual uh, evidence tests. You do the visual equity to know how bad the eye is. We can use the snarling chart or the Rosenberg eye chart. We'll talk about this snarling chart. We'll talk about the Rosenberg eye chart. We'll talk about the Ishara eye test. We'll talk about all these eye tests in Fundamental. They are in our audio. 
if you did not look at them and this is your last course with us you want to go back and review it in fundamental because they are important to know this eye test and their indication when can we do them how they are done what are the nursing management for this particular eye uh, eye procedure now when it comes to the patient centered care for this eye for this eye condition for the wet macro degeneration we use laser therapy we use laser therapy to seal leaking blood vessels. So if the if the person has if the if you have, have uh, leaking like in the case of the wet test, because in the wet uh magnet degeneration there will be leaking of the of the eye capillary with blood or fluid. So we can do a laser therapy to patch those openings that are causing the leaking to occur. Sometimes we use ocular injection to inhibit blood vessels from growing because we say in the wet test. There are extra growth of blood vessels. So we might use an ocular therapy to prevent newer blood vessels from growing in the eyes. Those are all things we do in the case of wet macular degeneration. You want to encourage the client to consume food. Food that are high in uh, certain things. One, we have food, they should consume food high in uh, vitamin E, Vitamin B2, so we have food that are very high in vitamin E, vitamin B2, and also food that are high in uh, carotene. They got to they, they consume food high in carotene. Carotene helps the eyes also. They have to consume food that are high in antioxidants. So they have to consume food that are high in antioxidants, and they have to also consume um, other vitamins that might help them to improve their eyesight. Um, they're going to progress. A lot, a lot of vision can will progress, and the client will be challenged with the ability to eat, to drive, to write, to read, as well as other activities of ADS, other ADS, they're going to have challenges to dealing with those problems. You want to refer the client to other community organizations that can assist with transportation, reading devices, and also large print book. And the client will have to learn new things because uh, we have braces for those who cannot see. But if you lost your eyesight at an old age, to learn those braces, it becomes difficult. So you have to go through a new learning process to learn these things. So the person got to be referred to other environment or other community program that offer these assistance to patients who have these conditions. Now, any question on macular degeneration? Then we'll take a look at cataract. So cataract is also another condition that affect the eyes, cataract. So we look at cataract. Now, in cataract, um, there is what we call opacity in the lens of the eyes that impairs vision. In cataract, there is opacity um, in the lens of the eyes, in the lens of the eyes. Now, this opacity will cause loss of vision with no time. 
um, what is important on the cataract, we want to understand there are common causes of cataract. It could be due to age, due to trauma, sometimes due to toxic, to, uh, toxic medication that we use. Or sometimes it could be due to other illnesses like diabetes, mellitus, hypoparathyroidism, like in the case of Down syndrome, or sometimes there's a chronic sunlight exposure can cause us to have cataract. Or sometimes there can be some other complication, like when there's an intraocular condition, wherein our eyes' intraocular pressure is increasing than normal. In that case, we're going to have, uh, we'll be exposed to having cataract. So there are so many things in here. Or even like in the case of our, when you are aging, as, as, as we age, what happens to the eye? The eye has an aqueous humor. The aqueous humor provides the eye's lubrication. With aging, uh, the eyes fail to provide, uh, the body fail to support where the aqueous humor is from to produce moisture of the eyes. So with this, the eyes can be exposed to so many different conditions, including cataract. Um, so for cataract, these are just uh, important things to look at. There are so many different ways for like diabetes mellitus, um, advanced age, family conditions, uh, eye trauma, excessive exposure to sunlight, like I said. Now, when a player has cataract, what, how does the eye look like? How, how the eyes will look like? One, there will be decreased visual equity. Whenever there's cataract, one, there will be decreased visual equity of the eyes. So we'll have a decreased visual equity. That's one we're going to have. Uh, we also going to have uh, there will be um, reduced night vision. There will be reduced night vision. You cannot see well at night. There will be decreased night vision. The client is also going to have decreased color perception. Decreased color perception. In this case, the client will have a bad result when they do. Um, the Ishihara test. But the Ishihara test, remember we said it is the test for the eyes we do for color blindness. So they're going to have poor results when they do the Ishihara test. Um, they're also going to have um, blur vision. They will have blur vision in here. Um, they're going to have what we call diplopia. They're going to have diplopia of the eyes. These are things they're going to have when they have uh, when they have uh, when they have the cataract. Um, also, there will be, they're going to have physically, if you do physical assessment, you'll see physically they will have a white thing around the eyes. That white is what we call the opacity. The opacity. So they're going to have opacity of the eyes. They're going to have that. Um, they're also going to have progressive and painless loss of vision. They will have in cataract, it, 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 it is painless. So they're going to have progressive painless loss of vision. They're also going to have in cataract, they're going to have, there'll be an absence of the rare reflex. In cataract, there's an absence of the rare reflex. The red reflex is absent in cataract. So they're going to have absence of the rare reflex when they have cataract. This is very important for the ankles. Now, in the ankles, when doing the eye condition, you want to write this thing if you if you have Pinterest. Pinterest will produce for you this thing, and I always ask you to look up to look these things on Pinterest. If you go on Pinterest, 
you have a lot of, lot of small uh, uh, chitty sheets that are going to help you to understand a lot of things. So if you, if you go to Pinterest, Pinterest will list for you the various eyes condition and give you just how they are. They, they, let me just show you something here. So they're going to have for you, like they're going to have like one, you have Katara, and in front of Katara, they will see, you'll see opacity of the lens. They will have two macular degeneration, and you'll see central vision loss. You'll see this in here. And then they have different eye conditions. You'll see glaucoma, you'll see a uh, 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 peripheral eye, you see all the eyes condition and they will describe for you how these eye condition are. and these are these are these are areas you want to spend your free time to know about new condition and how can you get this thing easier to do that because when you come to the class we do for you the audio we tell you about these things you go to Pinterest when you see it there you you, you, you write them down in your notepad or in your cardboard it helps you to stay with you forever that's how important these things are then for Cetera, we can also determine that, that, that the eyes is getting damaged through otomoscopy. They can also help us. Um, so when the client has cataract, you want to make sure you check the client visual with a snarling chart. Yes, they will have decreased visual equity. Determine the client functional capacity due to decreased vision. You want to increase the amount of light in the room for the client who has cataract. You want to also increase or provide adaptive devices or equipment that can accommodate the client who has a reduced vision. You want to also help the client. The client needs magnifying lenses. Some people can use magnifying lenses that help to magnify images or writings for them. It helps them. Like these are all things that we need to use for them to help them. Talking devices such as clocks, sometimes they cannot see. You want to get them devices that can talk and tell them what's happening in the surrounding. So you, you, you want to offer them radio, not television, or the TV should be, or the one that they can listen to the sound, and they should have good sound monitoring. It is important that they have these things when they have eye problem. Now, for the medication on a cataract, yes, we start with medication. If the drugs are not working, that's when we can do a surgery. So we start with this medication. The first thing we want to give is anti-cholinergic agent, cholinergics. We start with this medication. What are some of these medications? You must know, you, I guess you already know them. There are thousands of them. We talk about them right in here. There are a lot. We even talk about the anticholinergic effect of some medication, like serotonin. We're talking about that. We said that these drugs can be used for eye surgery. When we are going to the sea, we can use these drugs for morning sickness. I'm talking about them in here. Example of them is you have atropines. Atropines, 1% atomic eye solution. It is an anticholinergic eye medication that we can use for cataract when the client has cataract. Um, this drugs can help to prevent pupil constriction. When you take atropine, atropine, 1% atomic solution prevents, uh, it prevents uh, pupil constriction. It prevents pupil, 
constriction. That's the function. That's how it works for the client. The atropine one percent eye atomic solution. It prevents pupil constriction. Um, it also um, so it, it prevents the pupil constriction for for prolonged periods of time and relaxes muscles in the eyes. Um, so it, it, so it does two things. It does madriasis and also sacroplegia, meaning for madriasis, um, it helps to prolong the pupil constriction. It, it, it prevents pupil constriction, meaning, meaning, meaning that is madriasis. And it also relaxes the muscles in the eyes, which is cyclope uh, cycloplegia. So it does madriasis, uh, madriasis, and cycloplegia of the eyes. So when you take atropine, these are the two things it does for the eyes: cycloplegia and madriasis. Um, also, um, when it is also used to dilate the eye when we are doing the pre-op procedure of the eye to visualize the eye's internal structure. And that's why when you go to the eye doctor to do your eye test and they say, I'm going to, uh, did it come with a, with a driver or you came alone? Because we'll, get, we'll put a medication in your eyes that will make you, you won't be able to drive or you'll be able to see or you, you'll be uncomfortable in your eyes for some time. So you cannot drive back home alone. We need an Uber or we want to call someone to help you take you home. These are questions we, we ask the client when the client comes for eye test that we're going to use some of these medications. So we remind the client about the effect of this medication. Uh, it can last up to 7 to 12 days when you put it in the eyes. Uh, the, eye, the, the drugs can cause photo, photosensitivity. So you remind the client to wear eyeglasses to protect against the sunlight or against light when they take this medication. Um, we use these drugs. If these drugs are not effective and they're not, they're not helping to arrest the progress of the cataract, then we tend to surgery. So we can use a surgical procedure to remove the lens, to remove the lens of the eyes. So in this surgical procedure, they will create a small incision and uh, the lens is either removed in one piece or the break the lenses in several pieces and remove them all. Because the opacity of the eye, the white thing that appears on the eye, it is attached to the lens of the eye. So we cannot move it without moving the lens. So we either break the lens into two pieces or into several pieces to remove them to, to, to stop the cataract. Um, we, the posterior capsule is retained a replacement of the intraocular lens is inserted. Replacement lenses can correct refractive error resulting into improved vision. So the client can use some other um, artificial lenses to help to improve their vision if we remove the, uh, the damaged lens that has the cataract attached to it. Um, we want to make sure we prevent an increased intraocular pressure at this stage. Note it intraocular pressure, you want to administer autama or the autonomic medications, you want to provide pain relief, teach the client about self-care at home and fall prevention when the client has done the procedure. It is important the client to know this thing. When it comes to the client education, the client needs to wear 
some gadgets for some from period of time when the client has done the procedure to prevent the eyes from damaging you want to report any sign of infection now when you do the eye procedure the client might have some other eyes infection like any other surgical procedure that stain the risk of either hemorrhage or or infection for the eyes there are two cardinal signs that will make us to know that the client is having some eye infection those include there will be two color drainage coming in either one of them so the client might have a yellow drainage coming out of the eyes after the procedure or they might have a greenish drainage so they might have green or yellow drainage from the eyes which is a sign of what infection of the eye and understand these things will not happen the same day we said when there's a surgery we do not expect to have a surgical complication that will result in the infection in the same day because infection will not develop one day and come no it develops over a period of 48 hours after surgery so our first complaint our first thing we, we, we we're going to be concerned about after the after the cataract surgery will be bleeding bleeding is our first concern in the first 24 hour bleeding is our concern in the second 24 hour which becomes for the eight hours our concern become uh infection which there will be yellow discoloration or there might be um greenish discolorations now then uh, we also make sure the client must avoid the following the following activities after an eye surgery, after cataract, they must avoid these following activities to prevent increase, uh, increase intraocular pressure. Now, the IOP, because if they do these activities, they're going to have IOP. So, one, the client must avoid bending over her waist or over the waist. Bending over the waist. You cannot bend. You cannot bend over. Your waist after the cataract surgery. That's one. You gotta avoid that. Two, the client gotta avoid sneezing. You do not want to sneeze when you have the cataract surgery done. You do not want to cough. Coughing is prohibited. Coughing. You have like a straining. You do not want to strain. Straining is also not allowed when after the surgery. You do not want to hyper. Uh, with uh, head hyperflexion, head hyperflexion is not allowed. Hyperflexion of the of the head is not allowed when you do the surgery. You also do not want to wear certain type clothing and other things, and you do not want to have sexual intercourse after this this particular procedure. All of this can increase the intraocular pressure of the eye, the IOP. They can increase the IOP of the eye. So these are activities that you want to avoid when you do the cataract surgery. So um, you, you want to make sure you avoid them as much as possible um, to just try to let go, make sure you stay safe. Then uh, you want to also look at... Um, you want to also look at um, there are other activities that, that you, you you want to limit. You 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 want to limit tilting the head back to wash your head, cooking and housekeeping. Limit that. You want to limit rapid any 
activity that, that will cause you to have a rapid jerking movement of the eyes. Like you have like vacuuming in the area. You cannot vacuum the house when you have um, when you done the eye procedure. Like driving and operating heavy machineries. You do not want to do that when you have this procedure done. You want to make sure that uh, you report any pains in the eyes. You do not want to play sport. You report any pains with nausea, vomiting of the eyes. Those are signs of increased intraocular pressure of the eyes above 21. Now, we should know the normal IOP of the eye. I think it's a ring between 10 to 10 to 21. Anything above that, it is an increase. Any greater than that is increased intraocular pressure of the eyes. So you want to make sure you stay within the range. You want to make sure... Um, because you're not going to have any vision up to four to six weeks. So when you do the procedure, your, your best eye vision will come after four to six weeks. So after the procedure, it takes this amount of time to have a better vision, which is four to six weeks. So within these four to six weeks, you want to make sure you prevent all these things from happening. If, if, they, if they do happen, they're going to expose you to damaging of the eye or, 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 the, or, or the surgery which will create complications. These are things you want to avoid. You also want to make sure that the client should report if there's anything that's occurring, such as the eyelid swelling, decreased vision, bleeding or, dis or discharge coming from the eye, sharp, sudden pains, flashes of lights in the eyes, or the a floating shapes in the eye. If you are having these symptoms, you want to avoid them when you are, uh, when you are, when when you are done when you are done with the procedure there might be other complications like i said like infection or bleeding and you got to report the signs of this complication any question on katara glaucoma glaucoma is the last eye condition that we want to look at before leaving the eyes, then we'll go to the ear. Glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is one of those eye conditions that uh, affects a lot of people. Glaucoma is just the disturbances of the functional or the structural integrity of the eye or of the optic nerve. So glaucoma affects the optic nerve directly that will lead to eye, uh, uh, that will lead to vision loss. Um, glaucoma can also affect the eyes, which can result into decreased fluid drainage, or it can also lead to increased, ocular. there will be increased intraocular pressure um, in the eyes. and can cause some other changes that might affect the optic nerve, it can cause visual disturbances um normally like i said our normal intraocular pressure of the eye is between 10 to 10 to 21 so our iop if you don't know it know it is 10 to 21 normal iop of the eyes now um anything affecting this increasing it it puts stress on the eyes and there's pins on the eyes so once we cross 21 we are above there now, in glaucoma, there are two different glaucoma. Oh, excuse me. There are two different glaucoma. 
one is the open angle and you have the close angle or we call it the we call it the primary open angle glaucoma is called primary um open angle glaucoma and you have the primary angle closure glaucoma there are two types so the first one is the POAG in short so in short we will call it POAG meaning it is called the primary open angle glaucoma this is what you're going to see in some of the message book now under the POAG um, it is the most common one um, it refers to the angle between the aries and the sclera of the eyes. In the first one, in this one, the aqueous humor that I talk about, um, there is a decrease in the flow of the aqueous humors. So the aqueous humor, humor it, is, uh, it, it, it is the portion that provides the eyes with lubrication. And the aqueous humor, humor is coming from a, what we call the canal of skin or the trabecular mesh work, causing a gradual, there where it comes from. Now, when there is a blockade, when there is a decrease in the flow of the aqueous humor, this leads to an increase in the intraocular pressure of the eyes because the eyes will become dry up, uh, there will be no lubrication or lubricant in there, it will be, there will be no moisturization in there. This will lead to drying up of the canal of skin Shame that will lead to increase in the intraocular pressure of the eyes above 21. Now, so this is what happening in the case of the primary open angle glaucoma. Now, in the second, in the primary angle closure glaucoma, in the angle closure glaucoma, um, there is a sudden rise in the IOP. The second type, which has to do about the 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 angle closure glaucoma angle closure glaucoma this one this is the open one this is the close one um in the close one there is a sudden rise in the intraocular pressure of the eyes above 21 now in in here the angle between the aries and the sclera can close suddenly. It closes just abruptly. It's going to close abruptly. And uh, the aqueous under here, when it closes abruptly, it causes a corresponding increase in the IOP. So once it closes, there will be an increase in the IOP right away. So that's why it, it, it happens very abruptly. Once it happens abruptly, the effect is seen within the intraocular pressure of the eye. There's an Sudden increase in the IOP of the eyes above 21. Now, so this onset requires an immediate treatment. It requires an immediate treatment for a good prognosis. So, um, if, it, if it is not treated, the client can have abrupt blindness. You have seen people go to bed the next day, they wake up in the morning, their eyes, they are blind. It happens in the case of glaucoma. In glaucoma, Type 2, which is the closure angle glaucoma. I have seen a girl. I went to Grand Jeter County. I was in Grand Jeter. A girl was living in the town. 
This girl has come to the clinic the next day with her son. After one day, the following day, when we have the girl, the girl is, uh, when we have the girl, the girl is already blind. And then the fun thing about it, because we're in Liberia and in Africa, everything that happens in Africa will link with, with, with some voodoo or some witch activities. They say, oh, the witch, or oh, witchcraft have eaten the girl eyes during the night. Because it was strange. Now, if you don't know about these things, you will believe it because somebody can just woke up <laughs> uh, overnight, they went to bed, nothing happened to them. The next morning, they woke up in the morning, they gone blind. So this, this can happen in the angle closure glaucoma. It happens right away that there will be a blockade in the aqueous humor flow. There will be a blockade and this will cause increase in the, uh, in the intraocular pressure and the client and the patient will go blind right away. So it will require an immediate eye attention. And she was blind for some time. A guy came who, he came from Sierra Leone. He understood what, what was going on. He was... Uh, a herbalist at the same time I think he was he was he was not a nurse but he did some medication I think some medicine some medical studies somewhere and he came he gave us an injection gave us some, I don't know what injection he used on her gave, gave us some herb and other things one look after like a week she regained her eyesight so he came perform some rituals and other things now so if we don't know about these things we always linger with wish but they are medical conditions they can be treated so for the type 2, which is the primary angle closure glaucoma, is it comes in suddenly, there will be increase in the IOP, it will lead to immediate blindness that will require immediate attention. Now, um, in the primary now let's look at the symptoms for both of them. Let's look at the symptoms for the open angle glaucoma. In the open angle glaucoma, the client will have headache, they will have headache, they will have mild eye, eye pains in here. The client is going to have um, loss of peripheral vision. That's what I want to talk about. In, in this case, the client will have loss of peripheral vision. Now, in macular degeneration, the client has loss of what? Loss of central vision. In glaucoma, the client will have loss of peripheral vision. Now, remember this. In cataract, the client will have opacity of the eyes. And there are different eye conditions that we did in fundamental. And they will, I don't want to know one word about each eye that will describe the entire condition. That makes it easier for the endless. So the client will have loss of peripheral eye vision. The client going to have decreased accommodation they will have decreased accommodation uh, under here. The client is also going to have hollows around light. They will have hollows around objects. Um, hollow is like you have an object here and you have these things around it. So they're going to have hollows. So these are symptoms you want to talk about because in the end class, they'll describe for you an eyesight and they'll ask you what eye condition is this. So they'll tell you a, a client who has who see a halo around the, around a cup, who see this, who has a peripheral visual loss, what condition the client has. You must know it is under the angle open glaucoma. And in this case, the client will have an increase, an increased IOP. 
in this country do have increased IOP. Now, in the open angle glaucoma, the IOP is surely increased above 22. So they'll have between 22 to 32 IOP. This is a high one. So, so the IOP is between 10 to 21. But in the case of this glaucoma, the open angle glaucoma, they'll have it between 22 to, to 32. That would be a high eye pressure. Then, for the angle closure glaucoma, um, for the angle closure glaucoma, let's look at the sound symptom I'm going to see under here. So under here, for the angle closure glaucoma, the client will have rapid onset. So the angle closure, angle closure glaucoma, um, the client will have rapid, it will be very fast, they will have rapid onset of elevated IOP. Rapid onset of elevated or increased IOP above 30 millimeter per mercury. So they will have 30 or higher. That's how high it's going to be in this case. And when that happens, there will be loss of vision. There will be blindness coming in quickly. There will be decrease. It starts with maybe decrease or the client might have blur vision. They might have blur vision under here. Then they're going to have color halos around light, like I talked about in other objects. Then they'll have the pupils. The pupils now will be non-reactive to light. It will become non-reactive to light. So you put a pen light in the client's eyes, the pupil remains stagnant. It does not constrict. It, 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 it does not dilate. It remains non-reactive to light. You will see that in the pupil when the client has angle closure glaucoma. Then the client is going to have severe eye pains that will come with uh, nausea and vomiting. Come with nausea and vomiting. Then, lastly, the client will have called photophobia. Now, there are symptoms under here for the angle closure glaucoma that are not in the open angle glaucoma. As a nursing student with the ankles, those are areas you want to understand and make sure you do that because in the select order I apply questions, these are areas that the angle will focus on to bring questions about select order I apply because they are alike and they have some similarity and they have also differences. That's how you want to study the angles. Then uh, we can do diagnostic procedure for this individual who have glaucoma. We can do visual assessment. That will include visual and other eye tests. We can do for them tonometry. So the client can, with the glaucoma can do tonometry. Um, they can do tonometry. Now, in this procedure, um, in this procedure, this is the procedure that we use to measure the eyes, intraocular pressure of the eyes with the tunnel measuring. So we'll do that and we'll see that it will be higher than normal. Then they can do gonioscopy. They can also do gonioscopy um, when they are doing this procedure. Now, in gonioscopy, um, it is used to determine the drainage angle of the anterior chamber of the eye. Because we said in this, the reason they are called 
angle angle because there is an angle between the, the, the uh, there's an angle in the eyes that is affected by this condition and that angle is between the aries and the sclera that's why it is called angle closure or angle open glaucoma because the angle between the aries and the sclera has a problem so we do gonioscopy to measure the size of the angle between the sclera and the and the aries that is affected by this particular eye condition for this condition you're going to monitor the client iop monitor for decreased vision and license to the eyes assess for eye pains and discomfort treat severe eye pains uh with analgesic and anti emetic because the eye pains will come with nausea so you want to give them analgesic and anti emetics when they have the eye pain you want to make sure um the priority never done for treating glaucoma is medication therapy prescribed eye medication is beneficial if they are used every if used every 12 hours instill one eye drop in each eye twice a day wait for five to ten minutes between the time when you upgrade put in another eye drop for adrenaline medication to dilute the eye you want to avoid touching the tip of the eye medication you want to also always wash your hands before and after using the eye the eye drop these are things we use we can use just like a beta blocker timoloid you remember what i said beta blocker can be used for eye condition so we can use for them we can use the beta blockers to be specific we can use timoloid timoloid can be used for glaucoma we can also use um drugs like or the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor I talk about carbonic, we more did this in uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. I talk about, I said this is the drug, I love the name, acetazolamide. It's one of the drugs for acetazolamide. I said this uh, medication, I love the name for some reason. And we talk about it. It, it can also be used for, uh, for glaucoma eyes condition. We can also use manitol. We can use IV monitor. We talked about it in mass uh, in pharmacology, and I said yesterday. I said this medication, this drug can be. It is the opposite of the potassium sparing diuretics. Now, because monitor is a diuretic, it falls on an osmotic diuretic. I said yesterday, and I said it's the opposite because in potassium sparing diuretics, it spares potassium, meaning it keeps potassium and let go sodium. So it is the opposite of this medication, meaning this drug will keep sodium and let go potassium in short. So we can use monitor to, uh, to help uh, control the eye's ocular pressure. And we can also use monitor to control the increased intracranial pressure of the, of the brain. So monitor can be used in both or more conditions. We can also use um, pilocarpine atomic eye solution, pilocarpines. We can use pilocarpines, atomic eye solution, pilocarpines, atomic um, eye solution for this condition. Um, for this medication, it is what we call it is a meiotic eye medication. It falls under the meiotic eye medication. Uh, for them, um, they help to constrict the pupils and allow for improved. Uh, fluid circulation in the eye, which will help to reduce the
the pressure of the eye because we say in this con in this eye condition the aqueous humor is black and the aqueous humors provide the eye with a lubrication so when we take the palocarpine eye atomic solution they increase the production of the aqueous humor that will that will moisturize the eye and prevent uh the ink and prevent the eye ocular pressure from being increased above 21 millimeter per mercury that's what happened in here and this these drugs only can cause they can uh they can cause blood vision when you use it on the eye so um they are considered as the second line of drugs of choice for the primary open angle glaucoma the palocarpines um so if these drugs do not work then we resort into surgical procedure so if all these drugs we use them and they are not working for us for glaucoma condition then we resort into the surgical procedure in surgical procedure for this we do glaucoma surgery we do laser trabeculectomy we do aridot uh, the aridotomy or we do replacement of those shunts that will help to improve the aqueous humor flow that will decrease the intraocular pressure of the eyes. What is important here for this procedure, know that when you do the eye surgery for glaucoma, for cataract, the client will use glasses to prevent photophobia. The client cannot sneeze, the client cannot cough, the client cannot strain. All those nursing doctors will talk about honor cataract. They are all applied to this eye surgery. So when we do cataract eye surgery, whatsoever we do to prevent complication, they are also done in the case of a, a glaucoma, a glaucoma surgery. You want to make sure that uh, the client should not lie on the operative side. This is important for cataract. If the cataract is on the left side, when the client is done the surgery, the client should lie down on the opposite side of the of the, 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 of, 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 of the damaged eye. Meaning, if you did it on the left side, the client will lie on the right side. If you did it on the right side, the client lies on the left side. For this surgery, it is the opposite of the damaged eye that the client will lie down after glaucoma surgery. It is important to know that. The client should report any changes, such as, like we talk about in cataract, decreased vision, eye pains, yellow or green eye discharges or drainage. The client should report sharp, sudden eye pains. The client should limit the same activity that the client limited when, it, when we did the cataract surgery, which they tilting your head. The client should limit the same activities on the glaucoma. Simple as that. Then uh, the client, after the surgery, the client might have other complications. Sometimes if the surgery goes bad, the client might become blind forever. If, 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 if the glaucoma cannot be treated, the client goes blind forever. Those are common things about cataract surgery. Any question on, on cataract? Any question on cataract? Then let's do the ear. Um, let's, let's do the ear. Ears conditions. Now, under the ear conditions, the ears are also sensory organs of our body 
that would that fall under the neural sensory disorders and care for this condition. Now, the ear is a sensory organ with two functions. The ear has two distinct functions. They include hearing and balance. So the ears help us to balance. It helps us to hear sounds in our surrounding. Um, the middle ear consists of the tympanic membrane and three other smaller bones, which include the ossicles, the malus, uh, include three small bones, which, which are the malus, the incas, now the steps. So the three bones are in the middle ear, the steps, the, 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 the steps, the malus, and the incas. Now, the inner ear is located deep within the temporal bones of the head, because I guess small thing I'm going to understand. And most important under here is it is cranial nerve 7, cranial nerve 8 that function with the ear. Cranial nerve 7 and cranial nerve 8, they are mainly the two nerves that link that are linked with the ears. Now, uh, the visual, vestibular, and the proprioceptive system provide the brain with input regarding balance. Uh, problem within this area can cause risks of loss of balance. When you have problem with this portion of, of the ear, there's going to be risks of imbalances occurring. Um, for nurses, under here, what is important under here for us as nurses, we should understand some of the conditions that the clients or patients face when they have ear or hearing problems. Those conditions include you have too much of the ears, you have inner ear disorders, different types, you have balance issues with the ear when the ear has a problem. Those are things you want to understand with the anchor to understand that uh, these are things that you, want to, you have to know and know the nursing implication for these conditions. Like when a client has hearing loss, um, it could be caused from the environment or from, the, from where the client works might be the cause of uh, hearing loss if, they, if, if they've been exposed to so much noise in fiery setting. This can also contribute to hearing loss. Um, we have conductive hearing loss um, that is caused by factors such as otitis media, otosclerosis, and other person of foreign body in the ear. All these things can cause conductive hearing loss. When we did fundamental, we talk about two different hearing losses. We talk about the cognitive hearing loss, and we talk about, um, I think there were, there were two cognitive hearing loss. And what kind of hearing loss again? Uh, two, 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 I'm, I'm not very sure about it. I'm, I'm check it out, but we talk about hearing loss. We talk about the cognitive hearing loss. We talk about the sensory. Thank you very much. We talk about cognitive hearing loss and sensory hearing loss. Thank you very much for reminding me. Now, in these hearing losses, we talk about other tests that we do. We talk about the, the, the air conduction and the bone conductions. And we want you to go back to these things and look at these things and look them up. Because in the ankles, we'll have all these things on the ankles sometimes. And the worst thing with the ankle is when you miss a question in a particular topic, the ankle will stay around that particular area to see whether you know that topic or you don't know it at all. So they'll give you more than five questions in the area that you keep missing. They will keep being around and they will keep testing you. And you have to read it. It is important that you read it and know them. So we also talk about the sensory hearing loss and we said sensory hearing loss is due to damage to the wire, to the to cranial nerve 8. 
in our in, in fundamental they are in from they are in the book we talk about them so sensory hearing loss there is a hearing loss damage to cranial nerve 8 now we must know this cranial nerve and know their functions then we talk about changes in the middle ears and other inner ears that can be due to aging um sometimes we have uh hearing loss due to aging now then we talk about conditions of the middle ear we said it could be due to injuries it could be due to disease condition or aging also um what is important in here is that they're going to be ear pains ear pressure fever headache there will be conductive hearing loss and there will be period discharges if we have or uh, if we have if we have middle ear damage or, uh, or middle ear condition these are symptoms that the ear will produce and then these symptoms are linked to middle ear problems now also there are other medical management which include we give the client systemic antibiotics if it is ear infection uh we do sometimes we do analgesic therapy if the client is having ear pains and we do heat application for pains when the client has ear pains we might apply heat that might also help the client sometimes the client might take decongestants these are all drugs that can help to release ear problem or ear pains when the client is experiencing ear problems sometimes if these things we do do, do not work for the ear then we tend to do surgical procedure one of the procedures we do for the client who has hearing problem is uh maringo we call it uh maringo tummy now in the in the in the maringo tummy we do maringo tummy maringo tummy is a procedure that we do for the client in the ear procedure we do maringo tummy and also placement of the grommet to equalize the pressure of the eyes these are things in the end what is important here is um we want, to, we want to know all these things we want to know this word this procedure what they are if you see them you don't know them you want to go back and rehearse them to know them there are other conditions that the client might also have um that are related to the inner ear so for the inner ears we have condition of the inner ear like vertigo so the client can have inner ear or called vertigo now at this stage you want to know um we have the middle ear the inner ear and the outer ear now there are certain conditions that are linked with only the middle ear and that's why i'm naming them now under here these conditions are linked with just the what the inner ear vertigo now vertigo occurs when a client has a sensation that he he he's having a or his uh that he or his surroundings are in motion so it's like you're hearing some sound or like you feel like the, the your ears are like your hair is like turning around whoa, 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 whoa. and then you're having that feeling that sound coming to your ear that is vertigo so vertigo is an inner ear condition sometimes there are benign tumors benign there are benign tumors of the ear which we call the benign uh the benign paroxysma or uh, in this case it is like a there's a response to change occurring in our surrounding it is thought to be caused by some disruption of debris in the ear like you have like this ear uh ear waxes that remain in the ear for a long time those are debris that the ear does not need now on the other hand these debris provide protection for the ear 
So that's why sometimes we have to remove them because if they stay there forever, they cause forever our ear. Now, also for the middle ear, we talk about the Meniere disease. Meniere disease is a middle ear condition. Meniere disease. Now, this is this uh, this disease causes episode of vertigo, spinning. So when you hear the word vertigo, it's like you are spinning. Like something you feel like you are spinning around. So Meniere disease, there are episodes of vertigos occurring in Meniere disease. Now, in Meniere disease, um, there are episodes of tinnitus, like bell ringing in the ear. You will see that in Meniere disease. Also, there will be fluctuation of sensory neural hearing loss in Meniere disease. These are inner ears condition that we should know about and know what can we do. Then we also have what we call the labyrinthitis. Labyrinthitis, labyrinthitis. Now, in this condition, in the, it's spelled as L-A, sorry, L-A-B-Y, I'm sorry. It's spelled as L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H-I-T-I-S, labyrinthitis. This is a condition that is caused by, it, it, it is just the inflammation of the labyrinth of the ear. It gets inflamed. After the inflammation, it leads to inner ear or it, it damages, it causes problems for the inner ear or the middle ear. It can also cause autosis media. So this condition can be middle ear condition, which could be otitis media, or it could be an inner ear. So it falls both on the middle and inner ear, but these are conditions that fall on the inner ear. Vertigo, benign, menier, labyrinthitis, they fall on the middle, uh, on the inner ear. Now, when you have this condition, it is characterized by a sudden onset of a severe vertigo. This labyrinthitis is, it, 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 it is characterized by severe vertigos. Now, under here, um, the claim it will cause vomiting, nausea, and the client can have possible hearing loss or tinnitus. They're gonna have this condition happening on here. Um, the symptoms are treated with bare rest and the client should be in dark room. Remember this very when a client has this condition, the client should the client would need bare rest and the client would need to be in a dark room. Bare rest and dark room is exactly where the client needs to be with this condition. Um now, the client can take meclazine. Meclazine is one of the drugs of choice for this condition. The client can take meclazine. The client can take uh, meclazine. Or the client might take uh, uh, di, di men. Hydre, hydronate, diamond hydronate. The client, if they want these two medications, so you, you can look them up. The client can take other meclazine or diamond hydronate for labyrinthitis ear condition. Um, these drugs are prescribed when the client has vertigo and the client has nausea. Um, systemic antibiotic therapy can also be used along with this treatment. 
these are all middle ear condition so um i'm sorry inner ear condition so we can do for the client audiometry tapenogram weber and ryan test so for the client of this ear condition they can do the following tests when they have uh, the following procedure when they have this condition they can do audiometry audiometry they can do tampanogram tampanogram or they can do the Weber and the Ryan test the Weber and the Ryan test we talk about this test what we did when we went up the hearing problems Weber and Ryan test you can look them up we can they can do this test uh, they can do this procedure um, they can also do otoscopy. Now, my my, uh, I I want to spend a little time on otoscopy. They can do otoscopy, and they can also do uh, what we call ENG, electro elect electronastatmography. ENG. They can do ENG. They can do ENG. ENG is called an electro Nystagmography is E L E C T R O N Y S T A G M O G R A P H Y. Electro nystagmography E N G. They can do E N G and they can do caloric caloric testing. They can do caloric testing. Now, among these tests, you will read on audiometry. Tapanogram, Weber and Ryan test, and I will do for you otoscopic ENG and the calorie testing. So I'm going to start with the otoscopic. So you can do a something, do a something on the on the first three, and I will do the last three for the sake of time. Now on the otoscopic, um, we use an otoscope to examine the external auditory canal, the tamponic membrane. So so when a client does otoscope, otoscope, so we are able to examine the external. We can examine the external um, auditory canal, external auditory auditory canal. That's one. Two. We can examine the tympanic membrane (TM). We can examine those three small bones we talk about. Uh, the mylas, we can examine the mylas for the ear, and uh, we can also visualize this the mylas through the tympanic membrane because the myla is the first bone that that, you, that, that you're gonna see through the tympanic membrane. There are three small bones in the middle ear. You have the mylas, the anchor, and the stips. So three small bones in the middle ear: the mylas, the stips, and the anchors. But when you do the otoscopy, you can only figure out the mala. The mala is the first bone that is serving as the barrier between the two parts of the ear. So you can see the malas, but you wouldn't see the stepes and that of the anchors. Now, under here, um, we use a speculum. A speculum is used to, 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 to visualize the ear. Um, if the ear cannot curve, you pull the ear up and back. If the ear canal is curved, put the ear up and back on the auricles. For adults and for children, you pull 
for children you pull where do you pull for children can someone tell me eh? okay so for the children you use you pull down and back for the adult you pull upward and walk back now the tapanic membrane should be purely gray color and intact this should be purely gray it should be like a pear purely gray and color beyond this it is not good so it should be purely gray um, it should be purely gray and intact it should provide complete structural separation of the outer and the middle ear it is the portion that's very between the outer and the middle ear so once you are cleaning your ear and you hit something in your ear that makes sound that make a bigger sound that's the one tamponic membrane and beyond that membrane the first bone that is there is called the mylas that's why the mylas is the only bone we can visualize with the otoscope from the outside when we do the otoscoping now then uh, the light reflex should be visible from the center of the of the tamponic membrane uh like around um it should, it, should be, it, should, it should be visible. Now, these are things you want to look out for the client. You want to avoid touching the line of the ear canal because it can cause, it can, it can cause pain to the ear. That Then, for the ENG test, the ENG is a test that detects involuntary eye movement, which is called nystagmus. So, that's what we say is called ENG. So, when you hear the word nystagmus, which we talked about yesterday, I know you, you've been seeing this, but some, some people can see the word, they can define it. And that's why sometimes I don't define it because you say no cross eye is strabismus. So that becomes strabismus. That's cross eyes. Now nystagmus is uh, uh, for nystagmus is just when a client uh, has involuntary eye, the eye cannot be stable. Now these things happen. Now then uh, under here. There is nystagmus of the eyes, which is involuntary eye movement, in order to assess the disease of the vestibular system of the ear. Um, we use electrodes. Electrodes are tipped near the eyes, and movement of the eyes are recorded when the client is similar with cold water insulation or injection of air. So how this is done is this. Um, we use, um, how do you call it? We use... Um, Electrode, we put it around the eye, like how you have electrode that we use when we do the angiography or when we do, uh, or, or when we do EKG. Those electrodes are placed around the eye and they are tipped. So they are tipped to record the eye movement. So when the client is having the test done, then we have water, cold water that is being sprinkled on the client and we want to see how the eye is moving. Or we use an air syringe to blow air onto the eye. So as the eye is blink, uh, as the eyes move, as the eyes move, we record the eyes movement. That's what we do in the case of ENG for short, the ENG test. In this case, you want to make sure um, the nurse should ask simple question, the name, name recall, math problem, like simple question like that. What's the name and other thing to ensure the client remains alert. The client should be maintained on bare rest and MPO after the procedure to until the client stop hearing those sign in the ear like red until the client stop hearing vertigos or having vertigos the client should uh the client can go fasting before the procedure and we can restrict caffeine alcohol sedatives anti-histamines for several days uh before the procedure
um, the test is not performed on clients who have a pacemaker. If you have pacemaker, you cannot do the ENG test. These are common endless point when you're having these things. Any questions so far? Then let's look at the, the, the last one, the caloric testing. In the caloric testing, it can be done concurrently with the ENG. So we can do both the ENG and the caloric testing together. Um, in the caloric testing, water, we use water, um, warmer or cooler than the body temperature. We use, uh, we use water that is either warmer or is cooler than the body temperature in the caloric testing. Um, it is instilled in the client's eyes in an effort to induce nystagmus. So we put within the client eye to see why the client will the, the client will have involuntary eye movement. That's what we call nystagmus. Nystagmus is involuntary eye movement. The eye is moving involuntarily. That is nystagmus. So for the for this test, we want to know why the client can have involuntary eye movement with stimulation. So then the eyes responds to this is to this water, either cold or warm water, then water is diagnostic of vestibular disorder. So we know the client has vestibular disorder or not after the procedure. The nurse should follow the same restriction as of ENG. So the same things that we did after the ENG test, for the client who did the ENG, those same things are done for calorie testing. Inform the client about the above restriction, which we talk about the restriction when we're doing the ENG test. Everything we use there, we use it in also the caloric testing. For this condition, we also give the meclazine that I talk about under here. This drugs, like I said, it has an antihistamine derivative in it, and it also contains an anticholinergic part. So if you look at that medication I put on the board, the meclazine, it has uh, it has two different drug classes derivatives. It has a derivative of antihistamines. It also has a derivative of what anticholinergic agents in there. Um, these drugs can treat vertigos in the inner ears. Um, you want to observe the client for sedation because it just has antihistamine body. It can cause sedation. You want to also observe the client for other precaution for ambulation. You want to warn the client about the sedative effect of meclazine is you avoid driving, avoid operating heavy machinery. These are things they need to avoid when we are administering meclazine. Um, then the drugs, then we can also administer anti-emetics. That we talk about the client might be at risk for nausea and vomiting. So we can administer anti-emetics. We can administer Zofrim or Odansetron, I talked about yesterday. For this medication, the Zofrim or, or, or the Odansetron, it has several anti-emetic effects. It can also treat nausea and vomiting that is linked with vertigo. Um, tell the client to report any dizziness or rashes. This drugs is contraindicated with clients who have cardiac rhythm disorder or cardiac rhythm or cardiac arrhythmia. When they have any dysrhythmia, they cannot administer this particular odansetron. We can also give a burning drill to the client, which is which is diphenhydramines, da, da, or we can give diamenhydramine, the, the other one I wrote along with the meclazine. 
These drugs are antihistamines that can treat vertigos and also prevent nausea with ear problems. When you look them up, you'll see them in there. So when you get this medication, you want to observe the client for urinary retention. You want to observe the client for sedation and take appropriate precautions in this case. You want to warn the client about sedative effects. They should avoid, when you talk about warning the client about sedative effects, they have to avoid driving vehicle or car, and they should also avoid operating heavy machineries. That's my important outbreaks or other poor outbreaks, the pedestrians. They can also take scopolamines. Scopolamines are anti-medication. Scopolamines. Scopolamines, they can also take scopolamines. These are anticholinergic medication. They can also take them for this for 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 these conditions. Um, you have uh, they can treat nausea and vomiting. They are available as transdermal patches, and they can be used for motion sickness. The scopolamines, when they are used for these conditions, you want to observe for urinary retention. You want to observe the clients for. For um, sedation, they should take appropriate precaution when they are in public places. Monitor the client who have open angle glaucoma for increasing eye pressure when they are on scopolamines. Warn the client about every other sedative effect that you warn someone about, like driving heavy machineries for the client who are on this medication. They can also take diazepines. pains. They can take diazepines and other medications that fall under the benzo medications, which can uh, carry away the vertigo that is occurring in the client. Um, lastly, we will look at vertigo-reducing activities. Um, when the client is having vertigo, the spinning of the ear, the client having too much sound in the ear, what would the nurse do for the client? For this conditions um, teach the client how to prevent stimulation of vertigo. Anything that will stimulate sound, the client will have vertigo, you want to you, you, you want to advise the client against it. Teach the client to restrict the mo their movement of the head when they are having vertigo in a position. Because in vertigo, you are like spinning. So when you're moving your hair, you want to take time how you're moving your hair when you have vertigo. You want to also have the client to avoid caffeine and alcohol because these things can cause palpitation that might that might also affect vertigos or that might exacerbate vertigo. You want to also make sure that uh, um, the client who on who having vertigo tell the client to space intake and uh, they should also um, to space the intake of fluids even if you are dead. You got to monitor the fluid intake. You got to make sure you take the fluid at a particular time to make sure that you are staying safe with vertigo. Those are all vertigo-reducing things that you do for the client who having vertigo. The client should also decrease sodium intake. Um, any food that contains sodium, like uh, processed meat, uh, canned food, MSG, preservatives, those things contain sodium. Clients with vertigo should reduce those food. Um, they should also remind the client to resume this precaution if the vertigo returns. So the client can use this precaution 
if the clients are to have vertigo these are common tips and these common tips for this condition they are important because if we use them sometimes in the ankle the ankle brings these common tips and acts or sometimes we get confused and we leave them out and take the big ones in the ankle we do not think very high we do not think very low we think appropriately these are things we do for the client who have this ear condition any question on the ear on the ear problem now spinal cord injuries spinal cord injuries involve the loss of motor function um, sensory functions reflexes and control of eliminations so those are what we call spinal cord injuries in spinal cord injuries um it might result to quadriplegia paraplegia or hemiplegia depending on the portion of the spinal cord that got injured it might also result into other like a trunker instability or trunker inability and other portion of the body becoming damaged it depends on where the injury occur um for example an injury at the c4 above if the client has injury at c4 c4 or above c4 what happens to the client the client under here if the client has any injury at c4 or above it put the client at risk for impaired spontaneous ventilation due to the involvement of the phrenic nerve so anything above c4 it affects the phrenic nerve the phrenic nerve is affected now you want to go and read on the phrenic nerve what are the functions or what the phrenic nerves uh do read about it because we can go into it we don't have the time for that so look at the phrenic. so any injury above c4 or c4 going upward it damages the, the phrenic nerve so any parent in there will, will give parent to those control systems of the phrenic nerve um so not all fractures not all fractures that we're going to have in the spinal cord that will uh, that not all vertebras uh vertebras uh fracture that gonna occur in the vertebral column gonna result in the spinal cord injury. Sometimes there can be some fracture in the along the vertebra, it might not affect the spine. So we have fracture that might affect the spine that can cause spinal cord injuries, and we have fracture that can occur, it would not affect the spine. So uh what is important here is there are direct injuries that might affect the spinal cord that might be secondary to trauma or to bone fragments in the spinal cord must occur for spinal cord injury in there. What is important on here is spinal cord injuries range from contusion to incomplete lesion that might cause impediment to the spinal cord and that might also subsequently create the inability of other body parts functioning. That's what happened in spinal cord injuries. Now, so in spinal cord injury, um, there might be incomplete lesion that might result into varying, varying losses of body function, depending on where the injury occurred. Um, so those are things that we'll talk about today, and we'll look at um some other things that can happen when there are spinal cord injuries. So when there is spinal cord injury, the first thing that happens is there will be lack of sensation. There's going to be lack of sensation to 
the portion that the injury is occurring, um, it, it due to the level of the level at which the lesion occur, and the client will report neck or back pains. In spinal cord injury, there will be neck or back pains occurring in spinal cord injuries. Now, also in spinal cord injury, there are some physical findings. There are some physical assessment findings that we're going to find that we're going to observe when a client has spinal cord injuries. So the client will be, there will be inability to feel light touch when the when there's a touch, like even with a cotton ball, the client cannot feel light touch. The client cannot discriminate sharp and dull when they are touched with with other pains. So when they, when, when, they, when there's a spinal cord injury, when you touch light touches on the area of injury, the client cannot feel that. Those are cardinal signs of physical assessment when there's a spinal cord injury. There will be absence of deep tendon reflex. That's why when you have an accident, the doctor will use some uh, something look like hammer. They will tap your knees and ask you, are you feeling anything? Do you feel anything? Though they're going to look what deep tendon reflex. So when you have spinal cord injury, there will be absence of deep tendon reflex. There will be absence. There will be an absence of deep tendon tendon reflexes on here in spinal cord injuries. There is going to be flaccid of the muscle become flaccid. There will be muscle flaccidity. The muscle become flaccid. There will be uh, flaccidity, flaccidity of the muscles in spinal cord injury. We want to have that. Um, in spinal cord injury, hypotension that is more severe when a client is in sitting in an upright position. So when you have spinal cord injury, there will be hypotension, but it will be more severe when the client is in a sitting in an upright position, there will be shallow, sorry, the client will have shallow breathing. There will be shallow breathing when the client has spinal cord injury. There's going to be spinal shock, which is a bigger complication of the spinal cord injury when the client has this problem. It might last for days to weeks. So, in spinal cord injury, we want to do urinalysis, we want to do hemoglobins, we want to do ABGs, which is the arterial blood gases, and we want to do CBC, the complete blood counts, when it's a spinal cord injury. Um, we can do uh, these procedures, can diagnose internal bleeding, they can diagnose uh, impaired respiratory problems, they can also diagnose phrenic nerve damage. So when we do um, this test, the ABGs, we do the CBC, the hemoglobins. Hemoglobin will tell us that well there is uh, bleeding, internal bleeding. Um, the ABGs will tell us whether there is um, whether 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 there is um, um, whether whether the client having some impaired breathing, which will tell about the ABGs. So the ABG tell about breathing. The, the hemoglobin tells us about internal bleeding. Then uh, the CBC tells us about anything happening in our body that involves other problems, uh, blood cells problems. Um, we can do x-ray. 
which is very, very important. We can do MRI, which will show us more in-depth description of the injury. We can do CT scan. We can do uh, CAT scan. And we can do other blood uh, tests that can give us just a more descriptive view of what's going on with the client's spinal cord. Those are things we do for the client when the client has spinal cord injuries. Um, now, what is important under here again is um, when, there's a, when there is a respiratory problem in spinal cord injuries, we want to monitor the client breathing status before um, anything. We want to make sure the client is stabilized before we can before moving the client to anywhere. Now, when there is spinal, when there is respiratory status problem in spinal cord injury. Um, there will be involuntary breathing, which can be affected due to lesions at or above the phrenic nerve, or there will be swelling below the C4. Now, whenever there is a problem above the C4 or the, the phrenic nerve, there, meaning there is a lesion. Lesion is when there's an injury. Remember, the spinal cord has three things. You have the spinal, you have the spinal cord itself. You have the meninges around, and you have the cerebrospinal fluid that around the spinal cord. So when there is a spinal cord injury, there is a lesion. That lesion will contain the spinal cord, and it will also contain portion of, of fluid from the CSF. That's why there will be a lesion in there. So the lesion is what we're talking about in there. Um, what is important also is we want to provide a client with O2 and um, suction. If there's a need to suction, assist the client with intubation and mechanical ventilation, we gotta do a tracheostomy if the client needs that the client cannot breathe. Meaning, if the nerve that got damaged is 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 linked to breathing, is linked to our lungs, meaning that client would need mechanical breathing or uh, avenue, which would be tracheostomy that will be created for the client. Um we will teach a client about instinctive spirometer use and encourage the client to perform coughing and deep breathing exercises regularly when the client has respiratory status damage due to spinal cord injury. Now, the client might have what we call neurogenic shock when the client have uh, when the client have uh, spinal cord injuries. Now, in neurogenic shock, um, in Neurogenic shock. Let's look at what's happening in here. So in neurogenic shock, and this is messy. It's where the anklet lies a lot. That's why it's difficult, and we have to look at it like how we'll do for the anklet. Now in neurogenic shock, let's see what's happening here. It is a complication when there's a spinal trauma. So neurogenic shock occurs when the spinal cord injury occurs. And it is just a complication or an additional problem that we face when we're already having spinal cord injury. So in this case, there will be a loss of communication within the sympathetic nervous system or that maintains normal muscle tone and blood flow to vessels wall. So when there's a neurogenic shock in short, there will not be blood perfusion. Blood flow to other nerves, to other parts of the body will be reduced. 
and this would be a complication of the spinal nerve because the nerve, the spinal, the spinal cord is the control portion of our entire body. So when there's a problem happening to the spinal cord that will cause us to have neurogenic shock, definitely the flow of blood to the other body portion would be in, would definitely be impeded, and that will cause the client to have this complication. Now, what is important here also on her is neurogenic shock can occur within 24 hours after spinal cord injury. So when a client, that's why they will ask you when there's a suspicious spinal cord injury, you cannot move the client because there'll be a lesion. Now, if the lesion is not managed, the lesion gets bigger or it burns or there's a problem that coming in. That's when you're gonna have other complications like neurogenic shock, other problems start to come in. So for neurogenic shock, it occurs within 24 hours after spinal cord injury because it is a complication of spinal cord injury. Now, for this neurogenic shock, resulting in peripheral vasodilatation that leads to venous pooling in the extremities, a drop in cardiac output, and a drop in the heart rate, and these are life-threatening complications that might decrease blood pressure. So in the endogenous shock, there will be blood pouring. So blood will pull through other areas and blood up, the color will have, there will be a decrease in the heart output because there is somewhere. And remember we said when the spinal cord injury will do, will do hemoglobin because there might be internal bleeding. So when there's internal bleeding, meaning blood, blood is pouring in other part of the body that does not need to be in that part, which, which would be called, which call out tear spacing. So blood and fluid are pouring in other part of the body that are not supposed to be in those portions. So that will, that will create decreased cardiac output. It will create, um, we're going to have, uh, 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 it will lead to vessel, it will, it will lead to peripheral vasodilation, which will lead to venous pooling, which will cause us to have decreased cardiac output and there will be decreased heart rate, meaning the heart will be lost in its strength to pump blood to other parts of the body. Then other parts of the body will, will now start to have shortage of blood flow, the brain, the kidneys, the heart itself, the liver. Those are organs that need blood flow. So when we're having this problem, neurogenic shock, there will be decreased blood flow to those areas of the heart. Now in the English, there are questions that are going to come like this question. And we have to understand the mechanism under which these things occur to be able to Answer, answer those questions. It can be easy. or have to understand the mechanism in which that will lead to these things occurring. Now, this can last for several days to week. You remember this can just occur at the time of the spinal cord injury? No. We said you're going to shock occurs after 24 hours of the spinal cord injury. That's when there will be internal bleeding occurring. Bleeding will cause venous pooling. Venous pooling will cause decreased cardiac output. Decreased cardiac output will lead to decreased heart rate, and decreased heart rate will lead to the amount of blood being pumped to other organs will not be sufficient. And this will have serious complications on our body. And that's when the client will go into shock. So for the for the for this condition, you want to monitor the client for hypotension because in shock condition there will be hypotension because the blood is the heart is not beating to pump blood in order portion of the body that will lead to hypertension. Monitor the client for hypertension. The client might have dependent edema 
the client going to how call dependent edema dependent edema um will occur now independent edema because blood is there's venous pooling and venous pooling occurring there will be like i said there will be tears through the spacing blood is being pulled blood is drained into other parts of the body that do not need to be in those body parts so the client will have uh, this happening and then the next thing you want to see here there will be lots of temperature regulation which are common symptoms so our body temperature cannot be regulated anymore because of this particular neurogenic shock so when you hear loss of temperature regulation in message thing on neurogenic shock those are cardinal signs of neurogenic shock that will lead to the client temperature is not being regulated according to how it's supposed to be then also when the client is in an upright position, clients who are in the organic shock will experience postural hypertension. So if the client is in if the client is in an upright position, an upright position, the client will experience postural, postural hypertension, hypotension in this case. Now that's why, what can we do? The angel will ask you, a client had a fall from the tree. The client had this and that symptoms. What's the nurse immediate action? It says, take the client blood pressure while lying down and while sitting up. Why? Because after a fall, the client might be exposed to neurogenic shock. And neurogenic shock, there will be a fluctuation in the client blood pressure while sitting and while lying. So the client wants to lie down, take the pressure, and the client sit up and take it. And we will see a huge difference between sitting and lying in the BP. That will show that the client is having the neurogenic shock. And that's how we do the BP to figure out these things occurring. So in the England, if you have not heard about this, and you ask, the England asking you with the client sit or lie down to do the BP, you become confused. Because you have never heard your two different answers. These are important tips for message. Now, over here also, um, transferring the client to a wheelchair should occur in stages. Because if the client has, that's why you want to keep the client stabilized after a suspected spinal cord injury. Because if the client has already been somewhere for more than 24 hours, transferring them might cause them to die instantly because they will, they will have severe postural hypertension that might destroy them uh, instead of helping instead of helping them so how 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 how, how does this happen when we are tutoring children a client when a client is to be transferred from um the wheelchair or to the wheelchair it should happen in stages one you raise the hair of the bed and be ready to lower the angle if the client reports that they are dizzy so you elevate the bare head and be ready if the client says, oh i feel dizzy carry it back to where it can because that could be a symptom of postural hypertension while the client is being transferred that's one two transfer the client into a reclining wheelchair with the back of the wheelchair reclined if a client is having this condition, neurogenic shock, if you are taking a client to a wheelchair, you want to recline the back of the wheelchair before you can transfer the client to the wheelchair. Three, be ready 
prepare to lock and lean the wheelchair back onto the back of the wheel, uh, back to the to the knee to fully recline the position of the of the chair if the client report this and that. So if the client is sitting in the wheelchair and the client report that I'm dizzy, be prepared to lay the wheelchair to the back or to the front of your knees. Let the wheelchair rest on your knee. Because if the client is sitting, the client will have postural hypertension. If the client is lying down, it resolves the problem. That's why the nurse should wear the wire to pull the client back to lay the client wheelchair on your knee to prevent the postural hypertension in, 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 when the client is being transferred. These are message tips for the thing that are very important. Then the next thing is you want to monitor for symptoms of thrombophobitis. If the client is being transferred, you want to monitor the client for symptoms of thrombophobitis. Now, in these symptoms, one, there will be swelling of the extremities. There will be absence of or decreased pulses. There will be areas of warmth or pains. These are some symptoms of chemophobitis. There will be warm area. There will be absence of the pulses. You remember, uh, you'll see those things, paresthesia, pulselessness. You'll see them in, in, in this case, not all six, but you'll see paresthesia, you'll see pulselessness, you'll see pains. Those three things, you'll be, uh, and, and you'll see swelling. When the client has thrombophobitis due to spinal cord injury, neurogenic shock as complication. You want to also, the client might be on anticoagulant to prevent development of lower thrombi or thrombus. You want to look at all these things. Monitor the client intake and output. The client might be on NPO for several days. Monitor, you want to monitor the client neurological status. Look at the client muscle strength. Now, in the muscle strength and tone monitoring, you have, after determining the, the baseline, you want to monitor for an increasing loss of muscle strength in the affected area. So when a client has one injury, you want to test the muscle every day. Can you grab my hands? Can you squeeze my hand? Can you move your arm? Can you look at your arm? Can you feel me rubbing your arm? These are questions we ask to know the client, what are the client muscles are intact or not. We look at these things. Now, also for spinal cord injuries, um, the clients who clients who have upper motor neural injuries, meaning um, above L1 and L2. So above L1, above L1 and L2, and L2, above L1 and L2, um, these are clients who have upper motor neuron injuries, will convert to a spastic muscle tone after neurogenic shock. So when a client has any injury above L1 and L2, this injury might cause muscle tone problem, meaning um, they might have spastic muscle tone Meaning the muscle will become spastic after the injury when there's a spinal cord or when there's a neurogenic shock. They will have spastic muscles. And then one will have injury above L1 L2 because L1 L2 will control those uh, they will control 
upper motor neurons. So, 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 they're going to have uh, spastic, they're going to have spastic, spastic neurons. The muscle become very spastic when they have L1, L2 injury and above. Now, in this case, clients who have lower motor neuron injuries, L1, L2 will convert to flaccid type of, uh, of paralysis. Now, so if they are above, if they are above L1, L2, they will have spastic muscle tones. If, if they have lower motor neuron injuries below, below L1 and L2, remember these things well, below L1 and L2, they're going to have flaccid muscle, flaccid, become weak. Here, spastic, it will become stiff. Flaccid, they will not have control. It will be weak. When you lay the hand, the hand will go like this. They're not going to have uh, strength in their muscle, meaning they are, they are flaccid. If they have too much strength, the muscle cannot move, meaning they are spastic. So above L1 and L2, they're going to have spastic city. Below L1 and L2, they're going to have flaccid, uh, flaccid muscle or flaccid facility. Just remember that. that. Now, um in this case because most lower motor neurons lesions involve caudal equina the motor and the sensory deficit can be patchy with some areas of innervation and others without that can happen in the case of uh in this case you want to encourage active range of motion when possible and assist the client in passive range of motion so if the client cannot do it themselves meaning the client would need passive range of motion so passive is wearing a nurse or a, a healthcare practitioner is helping the client to do range of motion active is when the client does it by himself or herself so we want to remember these things for this particular muscle strength and tone now um mobility can be managed also Client who have complete injuries will not regain mobility. If the client has a complete spinal cord injury, they cannot regain mobility. Client who have incomplete injury can regain some function that will allow them to move around with some braces. However, um, functional mobility can still be attained at some point in time like the use of wheelchairs and other assisted devices can be used to provide a client with functional mobility but the thing is when you have a complete injury of the spine is is damaged and it does not work anymore sensation feelings it is important to notice also there are various degrees of loss of sensation when there is spinal cord injury there are various degrees now, in spinal cord injury, there are different degrees of sensation loss. Um, the client will experience, depending on whether the, the lesion occurring, a lot of spinal cord is a complete lesion that, that damages the entire spinal cord, or it is an incomplete that just... Let me just give you a little drawing. So this, this, this is the spinal cord. Around the spinal cord, we have the vertebrae, that protect the spinal cord is like this coming down this, this is how they are like now you have fluid around here that's uh, 
that protect also and lubricate this area. So when there's a spinal cord injury, there'll be a bulge, there'll be a lesion occurring here. Now the lesion can be complete if there is a complete blockade here. It's a complete lesion. It could be incomplete if it's just halfway like this. So if it is complete lesion, the client is not going to regain functioning. If it is incomplete, the client can be helped. The client can use all devices to move around. That's what I'm saying in short. For the sensation, you want to take care of the, to prevent skin breakdown in both when the client is in bed and in the wheelchair. Because when there is no sensation, the client might be squeezing, might be creating some ischemia in some body parts without knowing because of this, because of the, a, a, a lot of sensation. So there are variety of forms of air bed we use. That's why clients with this condition, they, they got to use air mattresses. So there are various kind of air bed they can use to prevent these things, both in the wheelchair and in the client bed. Then we have, uh, hmm, there are two things here we'll look at, we'll look at them. they are very important. When there is, then we have spastic neurogenic bladder and we have flaccid neurogenic bladder. Let me just talk about just two of them in like in a mini, very fast. So we have spastic, spastic neurogenic bladder and we have flaccid neurogenic bladder. This is mainly for nurses, RNs, for going with the English. Now under here, um, clients, for the spastic, clients who have upper motor neuron injury, spastic bladder after the neurogenic shock resolve, meaning bladder management options for male clients include condom calendar and stimulation of the maturation reflex by tugging on the pubic hair. So, I'm going to explain this in a very good way to understand it. When a client has spastic neurogenic bladder, or yes, plastic neurogenic bladder, um, meaning the client has some, the client has had spinal cord injury, the client has, the client, the client is having neurogenic shock as a complication. The client has upper motor neuron injuries. Now, upper motor neuron injuries will cause the client to have a spastic bladder. Meaning the blood will become tense. Then urine passing will be impaired. They'll have this tense that they are being spastic. Now, the bladder muscle will become plastic. In this case, the client will need bladder management options. For male clients, we'll use a condom catheter. And then we'll have to stimulate their bladder. How we do this is we and we are pulling the pubic hair from all the blood. This will stimulate urine outflow. In the case of male neurogenic or uh, spastic neurogenic bladder, these are anchored things that you have to understand. Now, when this occurs, for the female clients, they will need to use an indwelling urinary catheter due to the unpredictability of the release of urine. For male, they will use a condom character. For female, they will use an indwelling character. Now, let's, this is message. It is important to notice this thing and remove it for the English. When the client has a spastic 
you're gonna gather for male they will use condom character for female they will use the indwelling character now then we have what we call the flaccid neurogenic bladder. The second one, flaccid neurogenic bladder. For the flaccid neurogenic bladder, um, in this case, clients who have lower motor neuron injuries, they develop a flaccid bladder. In this case, they will also need bladder management techniques or options. Now, for these Bladder management techniques are option we need for both males and females for flaccid neurogenic bladder. Now, for males and females, it will include intermittent cauterization. So we we'll do for them intermittent cauterization, and we do for them what we call the Creed's method. The Creed's method is used in here. The Creed's method. So we use what we call intermittent, intermittent, uh, uh, intermittent uh, cauterization. So we use this for the clients who having the flaccid neurogenic data. We use intermittent uh, uh, cauterization using the Creed method. What's the Creed method? The Creed method, um, it is the downward pressure placed on the bladder to model express urine. So we press. On the bladder, manually with our hands, with our gloved hands, we press on the bladder to release urine. That's what we're doing manually. So we press on the bladder to release urine for the Cree method when the client has a flaccid neurogenic bladder. Now, under here, what is important under here also is this will help to release urine. Now, then the client will also need help with passing feces when the client has this neurogenic condition or different neurogenic bladder because the client will not have control over the bowel so the client will need another procedure or another medium to help them to express that now in this case for the bowel functioning it does not differ much between the upper and lower function now in each of these in each of these conditions you have upper and lower neuron problem so for the bowel, bowel would not have any difference between the upper and lower. So we combine them. For the urine, we have difference between the upper and lower bladder problem. That's why I explained it just a while ago. Now in this case, we need the same procedure. There is no option in there. Now in this case, um, daily use of stool softener will use laxative. Stool softener to what? To help the client to move their bowels. Now, in this case, we use bulk forming laxative. Let me write it on the board because it's important to know that we use bulk forming laxative. I talk about this when we're doing pharmacology when we're doing laxative on here. Bulk forming laxative will be used in a client who have a neurogenic bladder. Um, uh, bowel function. I mean, in this case. A bowel movement can be stimulated daily or every other day uh, by giving the client Besacoda, suppository, or we do digital stimulation. Wherein we will um, we'll put gloves on our hand and put our hand into the client rectum or into the client anus and try to 
open the fainter muscles to release stool. We'll do that in the case of the flaccid neurogenic bladder for bowel movement, or neurogenic bowel function. It's important to notice for this condition because the angler will ask you, a client who is having a neurogenic uh, bowel problem, what, uh, the client has not stood for three or four days, what, what would the nurse do? What's the nurse immediate action? We use bulk formulative, we give the client basic coda, or we use manually, put glove here into the client rectum to open the finger muscle to allow us to, to come up. Now, we do this also, or there might be a digital stimulation should be used cautiously to avoid provoking the vagal nerve response, which can result into bradycardia or syncope. Now, so we might use a digital means to do this because sometimes if we use our hands, so we might stimulate vagal nerve. And the vagal nerve, when it's stimulated, it might, it might cause syncope. The client might faint. It might, it, it might cause syncope or it can cause bradycardia. Bradycardia or syncope can be caused when, when, when the vagal nerve is stimulated. I'm going to read what this. They said here, um, we can use digital stimulation. When we are using digital stimulation, it should be used cautiously, meaning if we cannot put our hands into the client rectum to open the fintal muscle, we're using other things like digital method to, to open the client fintal muscle in the anus, we should do a caution because mistakenly, because if you use your hands, you understand your hand, where it's going, where it's touching. If you use digital equipment or device to stimulate the rectum to release stool, when the client having neurogenic bowel problems, you might stimulate this vagal nerve. And whenever time this nerve is stimulated, it might cause syncope. The client will have decrease in the blood pressure that might cause syncope, or the client might have bradycardia decrease in the cardiac or uh, in, in the client heart rate. That's what happened in these two cases. Now, what is important on here also is development of a schedule as part of better and bowel training to prevent immobility. So the client must have a bowel and bladder training schedule. What time the client can pass stool, what time the client can pass urine. We have to schedule this on the, on the schedule that the client will pass through one day and we do not have to give this two something not every day. The client can, the client, any client that, that does not pass through for 48 hours, that client will need help. So we get a stool softener every other day or every day. The client can, can pass through once a day, that's fine, or the client can pass through every other day. Because normally you and I, we don't pass through every day. We pass through every other day. Some, yeah, you can pass through every day, that's fine. But sometimes it goes a day without passing stool. So this is what happens happen to us, and it can happen to the client who having these spinal cord injuries. The client might also have gastrointestinal problems with the spinal cord injuries. There will be the there will be an ilia that can develop into injury. You monitor for bowel sounds. So bowel sounds will give us how the client is having bowel problem with the, with the condition. The client might also have skin problem with spinal cord injuries. Changing the client position every two hours is important to prevent skin breakdown in spinal cord injury. The client might lose sexual function. Now, in sexual problem. 
teach the client about alteration in sexual function and possible strategy the client can use. Clients who have quadriplegia due to spinal cord injuries and other clients who have upper motor neurons due to spinal cord injuries, they have this lesion. These individuals are usually capable of reflexogenic erection. So I'm trying to say that, uh, let me just read on, on this board. It's important to know this. So clients, patients who have quadriplegia, their four limbs are paralyzed, quadriplegia. Or individuals who have upper motor neuron lesion, upper motor neuron above the L1, L2, that is upper motor lesion problem. If they have that or they have quadriplegia, these individuals can have impotency for males, but we can do for them a procedure, a strategy to help them to have sex with their partners. That procedure is what we call reflexogenic erection. They do what we call the reflexogenic erection. Now, they can do the procedure. Now, in this procedure, um, we do, we manipulate their sexual uh, part to create erection for them, in short. Um, they can ejaculate with emission minor or mini ejaculations coordinated with emission might not occur. The clients who have lower motor neuron injuries are less able to, to do this. So when a client has lower motor, uh, motor neuron injury below L1, L2, they cannot achieve it. But the client who have upper lesion injury above L1, L2 can achieve the reflexogenic erection. For the end, just know that clients who have upper motor neuron injury, they can achieve this. Clients who have lower motor neuron injury, they cannot achieve this. Just for the end, you just know that. So we can also administer medication that can help the client to achieve these things. Um, we're going to stop here um, because of time's sake. Um, client can also do uh, spinal surgery. They can give them analgesic and other things to help them. So I want to stop here uh, because of time's sake. And then uh, I will give the last portion on the recording to complete the topic. Any questions so far?